This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 8th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up, the political journalist Terry Stiastany will be here to examine UK-EU relations following a chaotic week for Liz Truss and the Tory party. Also ahead, Monocle's Alexei Koryalov will tell us why Austria's president, Alexander van der Bellen, is so respected in the Alpine nation. During the COVID pandemic, his reassuring and inclusive messaging acted as an antidote to government confusion. And then our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, will be running us through some of the week's stranger news stories. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday with me, Georgina Godwin. But first, here are the headlines. A large fire has broken out on the rail bridge that links the Crimea Peninsula and Russia. Crimea was annexed by Moscow in 2014 and the bridge is used to move military equipment into Ukraine. It's not yet known what caused the blaze. The United States has warned its citizens to leave Haiti following reports of shortages of basic goods. Haitian officials have requested foreign security assistance after the government warned of the risk of a major humanitarian crisis. Major flooding is affecting large parts of New South Wales, with Australian meteorologists warning that more rain is on the way. People in Sydney have been warned of immediate flood risks and to brace for another wet summer. And Liverpool will host the first Eurovision Song Contest to be held in the UK in 25 years. The show's coming to Britain after this year's winner, Ukraine, was unable to host because of the war. It's the first time the contest has been in Liverpool. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Terry, good morning to you. Good morning. Terry Stiastini, the political journalist and author, is in the studio with me. We're going to have a look through the newspapers. But first of all, I believe that we've just found out we're part of the same group, Terry. Yes. Well, as we as we discovered this week in Britain, um, during uh, Liz Truss's conference speech, she had a long list of people who she called the, the anti-growth coalition who were sort of conspiring to, to stop Britain uh, having the, the economic growth that it could. And she listed all sorts of people, you know, Labour, the Liberal Democrats, the the SNP, various other people. But one of the the particular people she had in mind uh, were people who take taxis from North London townhouses to studios. I mean, she specifically said BBC studios, but I think all other studios are are included. Um, And broadcasters and and podcasters who like to to talk the government (laughs) down. So, uh, you know, I I feel seen very much. (laughs) How was your taxi ride from your North London townhouse this morning? I actually got the bus this morning because (laughs) the the train, there was the the tube, the tubes weren't running very well. Did we send you a car? I could have done, but I think, you know, I think I just, you know, in a public spirited sort of, you know, think of the the economic decline for the taxi company, though. So, well, you know. that's true. I, I have to tell you, I had a lovely taxi ride. He went through the park. Oh, wow. Well, uh, it was sunny. It was great. <laughs> Left my North London townhouse in some disarray, actually, because the kitchen was being redone. But it was, um, you know, I'm absolutely proud to be part of the anti-growth coalition. <laughs> it's extraordinary, though, that she should be attacking. I mean, for instance, if you take the BBC, mm. it, that is the state broadcaster. I don't understand where she's coming from, where she can so clearly outline the fact that there are 
people that or organisations that she deems her political enemies. This is supposed to be the prime minister of the country who unites us all. Yes, and I think also one of the very the strange things about it, although Liz Truss sort of says she wants entrepreneurs and she wants people to engage in economic growth, she seems to kind of rule out a whole area of activity. I mean, particularly having to go at, say, podcasters. It's a booming industry. These are people who are quite entrepreneurial, set up companies, you know, run things, create value and are popular. And you think, well, that's that's a kind of entrepreneurialism as well. You know, in getting up and going to... She was praising people who, you know, get up at six o'clock and go to work. You know, we... <laughs> You and I, you and I, often often do that, and yeah. it's a, it's just maybe a different kind of work that she doesn't recognise as being being part of economic activity. It's quite extraordinary. So, of course, the Tory Party conference was on this week. Uh, there was a lot of damage to to the political brand. Yes, I mean it was. You know, rarely do you see uh, a party conference that went you know quite so obviously badly. Um, you know, where you had serving cabinet ministers criticising. Uh, effectively a brand new prime minister normally you know when you get a brand new prime minister come in all the sort of the conflicts are kind of smoothed over and everybody normally says well it's all fine you know, give her a chance and then you know you had people saying that uh, you know the prime minister should call an election that they thought her policy was wrong on benefits uh, the government u-turning on its tax plans to get rid of the 45p um, top rate of tax they had to to back down on that and obviously you know it seemed to slightly calm down I I suppose by the end by Liz Truss's speech because that is the nature of it you know you give your conference speech and you know the fact she didn't actually fall off the stage or didn't obviously go disastrously wrong at that point you know they kind of say well maybe she's had a little breathing space but parliament comes back next week and it is not going to be easy because you realize there's so much rebellion here and it's interesting that the times always has these kind of big behind the scenes uh you know in-depth reads about all the gossip so this one is headlined conference chaos wets knives and appetite for plots against liz trust so they're suggesting that this has by no means gone away and and one of the things that i love in these is the the sort of off the record uh quotes and you can kind of sort of effectively see the people who are saying this kind of with their heads in their hands. Uh, it said one trust backer, so this is her, This is the, the Prime Minister's supporters, this is not supposedly an opponent, said she's only lost two groups in the past few weeks. The problem is they are the parliamentary party and the country. It's the worst <laughs> self-inflicted political disaster in my lifetime. Um, someone said I was previ- this person saying I was previously confident about winning my seat, now it's no better than evens. And people are talking about MPs starting to look for other jobs, um, and then the difficulties also further down about um, of the Prime Minister getting a grip of the kind of the Downing Street and the, the Whitehall machine and trying to get through whatever she can get through. As a, back in Whitehall, officials are braced for the political chaos, in part because of events, but also because of Truss's approach. As a senior civil servant in Number 10 was heard saying, she's bonkers, but you'll have to deal with it. <laughs> I like I like her nickname, which is Daggers, because that's Dagenham, two stops <laughs> beyond, <laughs> from, uh, um, <laughs> beyond barking. <laughs> beyond barking, exactly. Um, now, Connor Burns is an international trade minister. He's been sacked, uh, for, apparently, for misbehaviour. Uh, at the conference, he was uh, seen behaving inappropriately in a bar. Interestingly enough, the person that complained wasn't the so-called alleged mm. victim. It was a third party. However, what's really interesting here is that uh, Burns, who was a Boris loyalist, was known not to be happy about where he was and what she was doing. At the conference, he praised his new boss, Kemi Badnock, uh, whilst taking a not so 
also Sly dig at Truss, saying that Badnock totally gets that trade needs to move beyond Instagram posts about free trade agreements. Uh, and uh, many people think that that actually might have been at the root of his very swift defenestration. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting. Obviously, we don't know, you know, what precisely went on at conference. Um, and Connor Burns's sort of answer to these allegations against him was that he, he hoped uh, the the party would be as as quick to investigate as as they had as the government had been to to rush to judgment about him. Uh, so yeah, we don't know precisely what went on here. But I think also what the government and the Conservative Party is trying to do is, of course, you'll remember that one of the things that precipitated Boris Johnson's fall is that he didn't deal with uh, the allegations against uh, Chris Pincher. Uh, and that one of that, that was one of the things that precipitated people suddenly starting to resign and the whole sort of, you know, snowball effect that went from there. So I think, you know, they are trying to react quickly, you know, that as soon as uh, the party was told about these allegations, they first suspended the whip from him, then he was then uh, fired as a minister pending an investigation. So they are obviously trying to react extremely quickly to any allegations and then uh, you know, and and then investigate further. So they're trying to do the opposite of that and, and get control of that. But yeah. yeah, but it is difficult when you're 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 talking about somebody who has been, you know, who was in the government but has has been critical already of, of the leadership. And I think what's really interesting here, if I've got my figures right, I think it's now sixteen MPs, Tory MPs, who are being investigated at the moment for uh, some kind of inappropriate behaviour. I mean, that seems excessive. Yes, I mean, I think you know, if you, you most workplaces if that proportion of your employees were were under investigation for you know for alleged uh, alleged misbehavior that we would suggest that something's wrong i mean that is one of the again one of the things uh, that that Liz Truss has to try to do you know she's got to try and get control of the the parliamentary party in a political sense she also then needs to try and get control of you know how people are behaving because if you end up you know if you look at in the summer, the, there were there were several allegations against you know there were MPs that had to resign, and then you know above and beyond the the rights and wrongs of, of what they did that they shouldn't have been doing. That then it caused by elections, it caused by elections which were were losses for the party. They lost seats which otherwise would have been safe. So, you know, obviously there's a a moral and ethical issue about how your MPs behave. But beyond that, in a kind of cynic, looking at it in a cynical way, there is there is a political issue in terms of you know. We don't want to to, to lose people, but, and then have to have to fight by elections yeah. in difficult circumstances. Now, right after the conference, Liz Trust jetted off to Prague. Of course, there have been big meetings going on there. Um, this kind of resetting of the UK's relationship with Europe, how's that been covered in the press? And particularly as regards Truss and Macron, because she was very rude about him a few weeks ago, but it seems they're big mates again. Yes. Uh, I mean, it's it's interesting. Uh, so a lot of the, the papers were uh, talking about this. I mean, to be fair, most of the European papers with a couple of days distance are now looking particularly obviously at the discussions that they've had with both this sort of double summit EU leaders meeting and this broader new European political community, the kinds of decisions that they're having to make about Ukraine and the kinds of decisions that they are having to make uh, particularly about energy and about, uh, you know, what they're trying to do to uh, to support the energy markets in Europe and also what they're trying to do 
uh, in terms of sort of reducing consumption. I mean, interestingly, one of the German newspapers here uh, picks up is is making a contrast um, with Britain and how the rest of Europe has is behaving to do with energy. So the Frankfurt Allgemeine uh, is picking up on a story that was in the British press later on this week uh, about. Liz Truss sort of vetoing a kind of national information campaign about cutting energy. So she's apparently had an argument with uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, the business secretary, who said, well, look, maybe we should do, you know, a big public information campaign to tell people to turn down their thermostats, the kinds of things that other European countries are doing. And they're saying, you know, government buildings should turn their lights off at night. You should, you know, turn off things that are using too much energy. Liz Truss said she doesn't want to be a kind of nanny state prime minister who tells people you know what how they should be behaving and and how they should be using their uh, their energy consumption so the the germans are kind of contrasting this with the rest of europe and how they are you know how they most of those countries have have been deciding to to actually tell people you know this this is a, a sort of public spirited way to do things and while also to to save you money um and some of them have picked up a little bit on uh you know liz truss's troubles at home uh, liz truss a lack of personal popularity and you know, in in the Figaro as well, they are uh, talking about you know the troubles that she's been to. The Conservatives are divided about their new prime minister. Uh, I've you know quoting anonymously uh, a French journalist quoting somebody saying, "I've never seen somebody burn up so much political capital so quickly." Uh, she's broken the economy and the party. So so you know uh, <laughs> even uh, you know if Conservatives at the conference were even briefing off the record to um, to, to international journalists, which is not often something that something that they do. Absolutely. Well, looking further afield, in Austria it seems that actually they're very happy with their leader. Tomorrow they'll head to the polls in a presidential election and the incumbent, who's 78-year-old Alexander van der Bellen, is running for re-election. He's sure of victory. During his time in office, he's redefined the Austrian presidency from a largely ceremonial role to that of a guarantor of balance and political decency. Heavens knows we could do with more of that here. Monocle's Alexei Karelov sent us this report from Vienna. Diesmal habe ich ein Amt. Ich bin der amtierende Bundespräsident. Und der Wahlkampf, wenn es denn sein muss, hat nicht Vorrang, sondern ich war deswegen genauso. Coming from any other Austrian politician, this would be astonishing hubris. But when Alexander van der Bellen says he has no time for an election campaign, no one is scandalized. In his six years as Austrian president, van der Bellen has sworn in six chancellors, becoming a symbol of stability in a country that lurched from one political crisis to the next. In 2019, when a video scandal known as Ibithagate resulted in the collapse of government and allegations of corruption against some of Austria's leading politicians, he famously said, So sind wir nicht. So ist Österreich einfach nicht. We're not like that. We can do better. And during the COVID pandemic, his reassuring and inclusive messaging acted as an antidote to government confusion. Guten Abend, liebe Österreicherinnen und Österreicher und alle, die hier leben. Die Wochen des sogenannten harten Lockdown gehen zu Ende. Und ich möchte mich ausdrücklich... That's why van der Bellen is confident of re-election. It's also because there isn't much in the way of competition. Norbert Hopper's Freedom Party is anti-immigrant and increasingly popular. Behind me now you can see both candidates, Norbert Hoffer and Alexander van der Bellen, giving interviews to state... But in 2016, it was a different story. 
Back then, his rival was Norbert Hofer, an anti-establishment right-wing firebrand with high approval ratings. Their runoff was pitched as a moral battle between good and evil. In the end, van der Bellen won. But the election had to be repeated because of voting irregularities, and the nation was held in suspense for several months. For the first time, a presidential election had to be repeated, and it was not just a repetition. In fact, it was a new election. This time, it's much more low-key, and questions of good and evil don't apply. More than anything now, Austrians want stability in their economy and in their politics, and they seem to know where to find it. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. Thank you very much there to Alexei. Well, Terry, uh, your father was Austrian. Stiasny is mm-hmm. an Austrian name, in fact. Um, but van der Bellen, he's been a real force for stability in Austria, hasn't he? I think he has. I think he has been uh, genuinely popular. I mean, there was, you know, obviously the last election was very different. It was very close fought. Um, the other sort of main political parties stood down. So, and so it was sort of a straight fight between, you know, the Freedom Party and Alexander van der Bellen, who was originally a green. Um, and so a lot of people came together to put aside their their political differences to vote for him. And I think he has kind of risen ab- above party. And in Austria, particularly, uh, the sort of the party in fighting can be massive. And it kind of goes down through society. It tends to be, you know, people sort of are very set in where they are, where they are politically. And, you know, as a lot of stuff kind of divides along along political lines. But I think he has managed to, uh, to rise above that and be what he promised to be, which was like a president for for the whole country, um, and so I think you know that that is in part the re- the reason for his popularity. And you heard that there; you could hear his voice, sort of very very calming sounding voice, you know, <laughs> which I think is one of those things that's quite important in a in a in a, pre- in a sort of political figure, and particularly in times like this, it's just like you know, it's going to be that sort of sense that things things will be okay, you know, a kind of a kind of reassuring uh, presence. No, absolutely, yeah. and I mean, harking back to what we were saying about trust, that's exactly what what Britain needs right now. There is there's a sense that. That there isn't a grown-up in charge. Yes, I mean, yeah, yeah. Van der Bellen is much older, and obviously, it's a it's a different kind of role. You know, he's obviously not taking the day-to-day political decisions, and you know, the the government, as as we just heard in that report, you know, has you know, governments have collapsed and people have have come and gone, and there've been all sorts of. Uh, political scandals. So, you know, in, in that way, the role of the head of state is different and you can kind of rise above the fray uh, a bit more. But yeah, I think there in a lot of places, there is a sense that people are crying out for some kind of stability and, and reassurance in, you know, in really turbulent times. Absolutely. Well, speaking of turbulent times, let's get Andrew Muller's unique take on what the past seven days have taught us. We learned this week that Roger Waters, out of boring rock group Pink Floyd, much beloved of lonely antisocial males under 18 and over 50, appears ever more grimly determined upon being credited as a co-writer of these monologues. We learned that for the second week running, we were to be eased through the opening stanzas of another wry sidelong look at the news by Waters' hubris and foolishness. For we learned, via an interview with Rolling Stone, that Waters believes that his recent attempted interventions in the war between Russia and Ukraine have earned him a spot on a kill list, which Waters alleges is sponsored by the Ukrainian government, though if we're honest, it could just as easily be maintained and or heartily endorsed by anyone who has sat through Waters' 1987 solo album, Radio Chaos. 
Anyway, we learned as we balefully surveyed this week's news cycle for stuff which might pad out a minute or two of this week's whimsical review thereof, that the intersection of politics and music appeared to be a recurring theme, something which ends badly at least as often as it doesn't, but which does at least make life easier for that admittedly niche cohort of humanity whose professional obligations include making fun of current affairs to a congruent soundtrack. So, swings... and roundabouts. Champagne production there. Come on, let's not have to have the overselling chat again. For we learned that Russia's proxy authorities in occupied Crimea have taken a dim view of the warblings of the reigning Miss Crimea, no less. We learned that Olga Valieva, and belated congratulations by the way on the whole Miss Crimea thing, won't lie, we forgot to tune in this year, had posted a video online of herself and a friend trilling the patriotic Ukrainian ditty, Oh the Red Viburnum in the Meadow. We further learned that Miss Valieva's version had auto-deleted and was therefore lost to history. Well, quite, but we learned that the Fates, and indeed the remaining non-Roger Waters components of Pink Floyd, had already conspired to compensate for this, the Floyd having recorded a version of the very song early in the war, with Andrei Kalivniuk of Ukrainian group Boombox, now serving in his nation's defence, and that's what you can hear now. Credit where due to the Floyd. We learned that Miss Crimea's version had not gone over nearly so well with Crimea's Russian-backed plod, and that she had been duly fined 40,000 rubles, while the friend with whom she recorded the song got 10 days. So we learned, if we might attempt a serious point here, first time for everything, that there really is no limit to the pettiness, humorlessness, and rank stupidity of tyrannies of all kinds. And furthermore, we, for one mildly satirical news review, hope that Olga Valieva is able to defend her title, if that's how these things even work, in a Crimea which is Ukrainian once more. Elaborating upon the awkward jarring of music and politics motif, we learned of yet another chapter being inked into the gargantuan annals of conservative politicians using music made by politically unsympathetic musicians and then getting yelled at afterwards. And these things are always outstanding fun. Can we get some general muttered agreement? We learned that Liz Truss, UK Prime Minister at the time of this recording, can't make any promises about what's going on by the time you hear it, had selected for the walk-on fanfare at her first Conservative Party conference as leader, Moving On Up by M People, a song popular in the 1990s with the kind of people who put framed posters of uplifting slogans in floral typefaces on their kitchen walls now. We learned that, imagine our surprise, etc., that M people had declined to see this as an honour. 
we learned that Mike Pickering, co-composer of the song, had responded thus, as will now be read by Monocle24's cultural misappropriation desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. So apparently we can't stop trust walking out to our song. Very weird. So sad it got used by this shower of a government. By the way, Truss, Labour used it with permission in the 90s. I don't want my song being a soundtrack to lies. Even more amusingly, we also learned that the son of M People vocalist Heather Small, James Small Edwards, is now a Labour Party councillor for the city of Westminster. And though annoyingly for this particular conceit, his father, Sean Edwards, played rugby rather than football, Small Edwards is not the kind to miss an open goal, as will now be read by Monocle24's rhetorical tap-ins desk chief, who by astonishing coincidence is also fanatic. Augusto Pacheco. An up choice. This tired and out of touch Torah government is indeed moving on out. A rim shot and a cymbal crash, if you would. And now the mallet. It is still a dreadful record. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Mullet. Thank you very much to Andrew. And of course, that uh, what we learned is yet another example of not only his stellar writing capability, but the wonderful way that our uh, engineers here edit. Andrew is a great writer, and I'm sure he'd quite like me to give a little plug for his book here. His latest book is called Khan, and it tells the story of the Victorian Football League and its successor, the Australian Football League, from, ni- from 1897 up until the present day. Like the game and the nation, it describes Khan is replete with glorious yarns and extraordinary people. So if you enjoy Andrew Muller's um, uh, uh, programmes here, I would heartily recommend that you read his book. Now, Terry, you too are an author, and in fact, your latest book was Conflicts of Interest. Yes, uh, which was, it came out a few years ago now, um, but it's a, a political thriller, and it, I, I would say, you know, obviously, I'm selling my own <laughs> selling my own book here, literally, uh, but it's quite still quite timely, uh, because it is about... Um, governments it's about people appointing their cronies particularly to the house of lords uh, and their old friends and you know the sort of the friendships and and the betrayals of people in political life uh, and it's about journalism and about pr and about the sort of slippery relationships um, between between all of those things so it's, it's something that hasn't hasn't gone out of date i would say it's possibly even more timely now than when i wrote it absolutely so that's another recommendation for your to be read pile uh, terry stiasny and conflicts of interest and where are you going to buy those books well i hope from your independent uh, bookshop because today is national bookshop day so every year here in britain more than a thousand bookshops around the country take part by holding special events creating bespoke window displays and more. It's part of the Books Are My Bag campaign, which is organised by the Booksellers Association. And in fact, they brought out a report, which we which we had on The Globalist yesterday, talking about the fact that sales of physical books have risen strongly, uh, but people are very worried about the cost of living crisis. And they're thinking of cutting down in other areas in order to be able to continue to buy books. But of course, the, the best way to support your local bookshop is to buy independently. And 
a lot of people say, well, I need to, to you know, go to Amazon because I can't get out or whatever. But there is bookshop.org uh, and that's a whole uh, network of independent bookshops and you can buy uh, online but using an independent through through that um, through that uh, portal, if you like. Terry, I think it's quite funny when, you know, if you're looking for a book and in fact, Brian Bilston has a wonderful poem about this today. You go, you, you're thinking, uh, OK, I think it had a green cover and it begins with a K. No, maybe that's M. Uh, and um, and she was talking about it on the radio the other day. And and by the time you fill that into a search mm. engine, yeah. <laughs> your local bookshop... Where's have... a bookseller will go, here it is. Yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> one, know. we've had three people ask for the same thing exactly. today. Exactly, they'll know. I mean, like, mm. there's something you just... You can't value that knowledge highly enough, can you? It's... No, and I think you can't value also the, the sort of choices that independent bookshops stock. So you, you will find things, you know, you know if you go into a chain bookshop that you're going to find the same sets of books on the front table and you know there's a whole sort of you know how, how all the books get there and which ones get promoted better and which ones don't and if you go into an independent shop you know it's going to reflect the taste or or the market um, particularly you know local ones they go well this is the kind of thing that sells well in our neighbourhood this is the kind of thing that we're interested in, in as booksellers and these are the kinds of books that we know that our customers like and so you can tailor it more to people's particular interests and my particular love at the moment is you know real uh, secondhand bookshops as well and um, we were talking about North London Townhouse there was one I've got a uh, Walden book which is in, I think, NW5, sort of Kentish Town area. Uh, I ordered a book online, which came through one of the, you know, second-hand bookshop retailers. Uh, and the the owner, I sort of thought, this arrived, that, that didn't arrive in a van, like a normal book delivery. And I realised that the, the owner had cycled down from their shop to my house to put, to deliver the book to save on postage. <laughs> and it's a really obscure uh, book that was published uh, during the Second World War, a fantastic old um, Penguin edition uh, of a book called warfare by words and that extra sort of level of of fantastic service this person had not only found the book but decided to to drop it through on a bike because they had my address that's absolutely wonderful isn't (laughs) it brilliant Uh, just a little bit more book news before we go because I'm not going to be around next week that's because I'll be at the Cheltenham uh, Literature Festival it's the oldest literature festival in the world I believe I think it kicked off yesterday I'm going there tomorrow uh, interviewing a whole host of people and the reason I tell you this is if you're not in Cheltenham you will be able to hear these interviews on Meet the Writers on Monocle 24 so such people as Robert Harris, uh, Howard Jacobson, Alan Johnson, Jarvis Cocker, uh, Sarah Churchwell, uh, and many, many others. So I've got quite a lot of reading to do between now and then. Yeah, but some great, <laughs> some great authors. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's all from the Anti-Growth Coalition. <laughs> Thanks very much for being with us. It's also all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to you, Terry Stiastny, for being with us and to our studio engineer, Nora Hull. And the programme will return next week without me because, as I say, I'll be at Cheltenham, but Emma Nelson will be in the chair and she will also be in the chair tomorrow alongside Tyler Brule when Monocle on Sunday airs at 10am Zurich time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.